Okay, I don't want you to hate this list, but I do want to keep coming back to it because I, I think there really is a backbone to the character of Christ, especially as we go through Come Follow Me and you just see events. I want to tie it to what we know is, well, what Joseph presented to the early brethren as the character of Christ. Faith is having a correct understanding of his character, attributes, and perfections. So we list it under character, just to shorten. You remember the list? Greatest. Number two, merciful. We must see him as having a merciful disposition. He's not a hard nose. He's very quick to forgive. And that will be balanced later. And then we saw things like he doesn't change. He's constant. He doesn't lie. He doesn't have favorites. And he is motivated by love. We saw the attributes of God and we saw them kind of in pairs that need to be balanced. God is all-knowing. And He has all power. But that doesn't mean He doesn't do all the things that He could do because of what He knows. He balances His power and His knowledge. There's His perfection. So we talked about all that he knows and all that he can do, and then the balance of what he does and doesn't do because of what he knows. And then there's another pair in there that's justice and mercy. Same idea, his perfection is perfect justice and perfect mercy. And that's the one we'll talk about tonight. But his perfection is in the balance of these. Now, what we did last week is his judgment. And understanding the perfection of his judgment is critical to understanding how he views me. I think the center, the source of so much of our fear of God is a misunderstanding of his judgment. And I wanted you to see from scriptural examples that if you had an interchange with God, it wouldn't be shame or disappointment. But that's what we're afraid of. He knows everything about me. He knows everything that I've done. And our conclusion is, I surely must be a disappointment to him. But any exchange I had with him would not leave me feeling shamed or embarrassed or that he was disappointed in me. And I love that with the woman taken in adultery. She walked away glorifying God and yet clearly knowing that her behavior needed to change in order to receive a better reward that she wanted. And so that's an understanding of his judgment. And then the last attribute, just to be complete, is truth. And I love that truth is on there um, twice. We'll address that later. Today I want to talk about, we did judgment last time, so I want to talk about his justice and his mercy, but I wanna do it by pointing out that his mercy creates an, a relationship with me. And I wanna talk, that's what I wanna focus on. I can't just simply walk away and say, oh, he's merciful. His mercy creates an expectation of me. 
And it has to do with his justice as well. So let me start in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 84, sorry, 64, not 84. Section 64 of the Doctrine and Covenants teaches two fundamental truths that I want to talk about, and then we'll get to his mercy. Because I find this message all over the New Testament. You're going to find it everywhere you go. So let's start in section 64. Doctrine and Covenants section 64. Do you guys ever turn to a chapter in the Gospel Library and there's nothing there? It's just a blank screen. Does that happen to you or just me? Dang. Happens to me all the time. I'll turn to a section and it's just blank. All right, section 64. Let me pull up the PDF version that I can expand. Okay, section 64. All right, ready? Truth number one, which is hard sometimes to understand, is in verse 8. 64, verse 8. My disciples in days of old sought occasion against one another and forgave not one another in their hearts. And for this evil they were afflicted and sorely chastened. Now, my personal observation and years of watching this in front of me has taught me that God didn't inflict them. An unforgiving heart doesn't cause God to inflict you. It's the unforgiving heart that hurts you. I think he's saying is, they forgave not one another in their hearts, and the consequence of that in their own heart was pain to them. Now, let me emphasize that because it just frustrates me to watch this. So someone hurts me. Someone hurts me. And because they hurt me, I hate them. But hating them doesn't hurt them. Who does it hurt? Hating them hurts me. So first they hurt me and then I hurt me. And that needs to stop. I should stop hurting myself. But the rule, I think he's just trying to say, do you understand the truth that an unforgiving heart will hurt you? You will be hurt. Now, I think it's a matter of we don't trust his judgment. So I have to hold them on. The, I have to keep you on my hook. But I need to trust that they're not on my hook. They're on his hook. He will take care of them. He will hold them accountable. And if I let that go, then I can let it go. But sometimes when someone hurts you, especially the people who have hurt you the most, it is a natural reaction to hate them, to hold them accountable for your pain and to resent them. But do you understand the doctrine that first they hurt you and then you hurt you? And that second one needs to change. We should stop hurting ourselves after someone else has hurt us. Here's a beautiful analogy. I love this analogy. This is from 
Grant Bangeter. Nope, not that one. H. Burke Peterson, that's who it is. H. Burke Peterson. For much of our lives, we lived in central Arizona. I lived in central Arizona. Some years ago, a group of teenagers from the local high school went out on an all-day picnic into the desert and the outskirts of Phoenix. As some of you know, the desert foliage is rather sparse, mostly mesquite, cat claw, and palo verde trees, with a few cactus scattered here and there. In the heat of the summer, where there are thickets of this desert growth, you may also find rattlesnakes as unwelcomed residents. These young people were picnicking and playing, and during their frolicking, one of the girls was bitten on the ankle by a rattlesnake. As is the case with such a bite, the rattler's fangs released venom almost immediately into her bloodstream. This very moment of time was a critical decision. They could immediately begin to extract the poison from her leg, or they could search out the snake and destroy it. Their decision made, the girl and her young friends pursued the snake. It slipped quickly into the undergrowth and avoided them for 15 or 20 minutes. Finally, they found it, and rocks and stones soon avenged the infliction. Then they remembered. Their companion had been bitten. They became aware of her discomfort, as by now the venom had had time to move from the surface of the skin deep into the tissues of her foot and leg. Within another 30 minutes, they were at the emergency room of the hospital. By then, the venom was well into its work of destruction. A couple of days later, I was asked to visit her in the hospital. As I entered her room, I saw a pathetic sight. Her foot and leg were elevated, swollen almost beyond recognition. The tissue in her limb had been destroyed by the poison, and a few days later it was found that her leg would have to be amputated below the knee. It was a senseless sacrifice, this price of revenge. How much better it would have been if after the young woman had been bitten, there had been an extraction of the venom from the leg in a process known to all desert dwellers. How did she, how was it better that they killed the snake? How is her life better because they killed the snake? Did it heal her leg? Did it make everything better because the snake is dead? Now, I have often watched the victims of major crimes relish the punishment of, the, of the, the guy who committed the crime. I've seen them in the front row at his execution. Now, does it take the pain away? Does it solve their problem? Does everything get better when the bad guy or the bad girl got punished? So when are we going to learn the lesson that holding on to revenge does not make my life better, but rather hurts it? Killing that snake did not help her, but hurt her. Vengeance and revenge and hating the person who has done horrible things to you is not going to hurt them, but it will hurt you. And so, truth number one, if we are unmerciful, it only hurts us. It does not hurt them. Lesson number two, back to Doctrine and Covenants 64. First, he says, if you forgive not in your heart, it's going to hurt you. 
And now we get to his character. Wherefore I say unto you that you ought to forgive one another, for he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin. Now that needs some explaining, but that's the declaration. If someone hurts you and you hate them, you have committed the greater sin. Now that bothered me for many years until I understood what he was trying to say. So let me see if I can explain it because what he's not saying is sometimes what we think he's saying, but I have indeed committed the greater sin. So let me explain that. And I wanna turn to that's, we're gonna do this this year and come follow me. That's mainly one of the reasons I wanna do it in this class is it has to do with his character and my relationship to his character, but it's gonna come up in come follow me. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Now notice the question that precedes the parable. Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? That's the question. Jesus responds with a parable. I want to start in verse 23. Anyone volunteer to read it? I'm going to draw it. Abraham, now, do you have it? Because I'm going to be drawing and won't be able to scroll here. I'll, I'll be, oh, I can get it at the end. Okay. We'll see Jack Abraham, or sorry, Abraham. <laughs> Matthew, Matthew 18, 23. Sorry, I'm not going to be able to scroll through it while I draw it. Starting in 23. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king to take account of his servants. And when he began, had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay, and I will pay thee all. And the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out, and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence. And he laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me the fellowers. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet, and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison until he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told their lord all that was done. Then his lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest of me. Thou desirest me. Shouldst not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors so he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you forgive, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their Okay, thank you. I want to make sure you caught the end of that parable. It's very significant. So a king has a servant. Now this isn't 
a billionaire. This isn't an oil tycoon. This is the king's servant. He shovels horse poop or washes dishes. He's not some billionaire somewhere who's invested in oil and it got rich. He's a king's servant. And he owes the king 10,000 talents. We'll talk about that in a minute. He can't pay. The king exercises justice. Okay, the law of justice demands that you go to prison and that your possessions be sold to pay the debt. Oh, please forgive me. Please forgive me. I'll pay it all. And he erases the debt out of mercy. His mercy extends to the servant and he erases that debt. But servant number two, or sorry, servant number one has another servant who owes him a hundred pence. He at first inflicts justice instead of mercy. And because he does that, who does he offend? Who does servant number one offend? The king. So tell me how the parable ends. He goes to the tormentors. He gets his debt back. His unforgiven debt is restored. Or sorry, his forgiven debt is restored. Do you understand that part of the parable? Because he was offensive to the king, in, I mean, just, he really did offend the king's goodness. And the end of the parable is, he gets the debt back. So let's put some, I'm going to make some assumptions here, I freely admit them. But let's put some weight on these numbers. If you were to turn to the Bible dictionary, it would say that one talent, I'll do the math over here. One talent equals 75.6 pounds. Now let's turn that into ounces. I need someone with a calculator. Abraham, you got, my, you got your calculator? Okay, 75.6 is how, times 16. 75.6 pounds is? 1,209.6 ounces. Now, what does this parable seem to suggest? Ounces of what? Here's my assumption. I fully admit it's an assumption, but I sure think Jesus is talking about gold. Ounces of gold. So... Let's look up. I, look, I, I lost it, so i got to redo this. Today's price of gold is $1,867 per ounce. So, you got your calculator? Times 12, 1, 000, or 1,209 times 1,867. And one talent of gold would be worth today. Oh, one talent. One talent would be worth. Uh, oh, uh, two million two hundred fifty-eight thousand eight six hundred eighty-six. Two million. I'll re so two million two hundred thousand dollars is one talent, and this guy owes how many talents? Ten thousand. So if we add four zeros and realign our, pair, our commas, servant number one owes the king how much? $22 billion. And what's his profession? He's a servant. 
Now, what is Jesus doing? Who is servant number one? And what is the debt? What is the $22 billion debt? That is my debt to God for all that he has done for me. All that God has done in my life and the forgiveness of my sins and my opportunity to progress. My debt to God is $22 billion and I'll never pay it. I'll never be able to pay it back. Which is why the Book of Mormon says that if we were to render unto God all the thanks and praise that we could, we would forever be, remember the wording? Unprofitable servants. I will never pay that debt back. And instead of tormentors, his incredible mercy and his love says what? You're forgiven. And he wipes out a $22 billion debt. Now I go out and have someone who offended me. Let's do this one. There's another parable in Matthew where workers are going to work 12 hours, sun up to sundown, and they're going to be paid a penny. The plural form of penny is pence. So this is a hundred pennies. So Let's assume $15 an hour. Another assumption, I get it. $15 an hour, Abraham, times 12 hours. One modern day penny would be? Uh, I did 15 times 12 and it's 180. Okay, so that's one penny. Wait a minute, let me make sure I'm... So 12 hours times 15 hours is 180? Yes. And he owes how many? A hundred. It's like $1,800. It's $1,800. Oh, sorry, 18000 That's what I meant, $18,000. Now, if, you, if I owed you $18,000, you'd be interested in it, right? You'd want it back. That seems like a large amount of money until you compare it to what? $22 billion. Now, allow me to just speak of this in terms of financial common sense. What will stressing out over your $18,000 debt to me cost me? According to the parable, $22 billion. So I gain $18,000 and lose? That's horrible investing strategy. I'm so worried about gaining the 18,000 that you owe me that it costs me 22 billion. Now the, verse, the, the, the reverse of that is, if I am willing to let go of 18,000, what do I gain? 22 billion. Now do you see what he's teaching? you commit the greater sin. Now, let me be clear. He is not saying that the guy that raped you did that you, uh, you hating the guy that raped you is worse than him raping you. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is his debt to you doesn't compare to your debt to God. Now, he still owes a debt to God. Let God deal with that debt. That is why we trust his justice. 
The reason we trust that God is just is so that I can trust that you, Lord, will deal with the person who hurt me. And maybe that will allow me to let it go. Maybe the best thing I can do is trust that that person is on God's hook and not mine. And hence, I can trust his justice. But I am telling you, the doctrine he is teaching is that if you are unwilling to forgive even a great amount, I know people have hurt you. I know there are people on this planet who have done horrible things to you. And that debt is enormous. I get it. But I am telling you that that debt does not compare in any way to the debt you owe God and has been forgiven. So you get to choose. Let go of what they owe you. And it will cost you 22 billion. No, say, let me say that again. Let go of what they owe you and be free of your $22 billion debt. Or insist that they pay you. And it will cost you $22 billion. His mercy and his justice have a relationship with each one of us. The relationship is his mercy towards you is proportional to your mercy towards other people. And if you are so concerned about them paying you, you must pay him. You are making yourself savior to determine who is and is not forgiven. And for that, you will pay the full debt. That is harsh doctrine, but I testify it is true. It is not easy. It is not easy. But you must let go of $18,000 in order to be free of $22 billion. You are committing the greater sin. What they owe you is not nearly as much as what you will now owe him. So his mercy is connected to your mercy. Do you see that relationship? How many times has President Nelson, just in his presidency, talked about this very truth? I count numerous times when President Nelson talks about letting go of the offenses that other people have made against us. Do you see why your relationship with the king is affected by whether or not you let go of their debts towards you? Let me illustrate it with an, another, para, another way. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, there was one day a year where someone entered the Holy of Holies. One day, a person went into the Holy of Holies that represented Christ. 
On that day, they would take two goats. One would be sacrificed and one would be, one ceremonially they would put all the burdens of the people on and chase that goat into the wilderness. So on the day of atonement, they would lay their burdens on this goat and chase him away. Do you see the symbolism? Jesus was appointed to carry our burdens away. Now there is a false version of that. There is a false version of the day of atonement. And that is someone who hurts you. Now it's natural that if someone hurts you, who do you lay the burden on to take that pain away? It's the most natural thing in the world, right? You hurt me, you have to fix me. You caused my pain, therefore I require you to make my pain go away. Well, on whom am I laying my burden? On them. And that is false atoning. They will never carry it away. I am telling you, no matter what they do, they cannot carry your pain away. But there is someone on whom you can lay your burden and it will be carried away. But not if you lay it on the wrong person. The only way your burden is carried away is if you lay it on the one person who can take it away. Now, part of that means trusting him to deal with the person who hurt you. I lay that on him because hating that person is only going to hurt me. And I don't need to be doubly hurt. I don't need to hurt myself after they hurt me. So I am going to lay the burden of my pain on someone who didn't cause it, but is the only person who can take it away. With her permission, I need to turn this off because I have her name listed here, but with her permission, I'd like to share a story of one of my other students. For years, I have been trying to forgive my dad for his cruelty towards me and my other family members. I was that little girl who never felt safe around her daddy. As an adult seeking for healing, I have met with priesthood leaders, therapists who specialize in trauma and have counseled with my heavenly father, but still my pain from my experience wouldn't go away. Most of all, deep down was me not wanting to forgive and release him. I felt like if I forgave, then it would make what he did to me okay. Like no justice would need to be met because I forgave. So it would be all good. It would let him off the hook. I wanted him to fix what he did. Now, however, I understand that his debt is not to me. The debt for my dad's sins has never been owed to me. The debt is owed to God. It's so hard to put everything in a text, but I just want to thank you 
for teaching this lesson, which has allowed me through the atonement of Christ to do something that I've been trying to do for a very long time. I can honestly say, I forgive my dad. And forgiving him him, does not let him off the hook because he has never been on my hook. He's on God's hook. What a beautiful thing, the atonement of Jesus Christ. I am free. She finally stopped hurting herself because she was requiring someone who can't carry her burden away to carry it away. When she finally put that on the one person who can carry it away, she was free. You have to have faith in his justice in order to take advantage of his mercy. The relationship we have with Christ is that his mercy is connected to yours. His justice is connected to yours. If you require justice of others, okay, is that how you choose? That's how you want to play the game? Okay. Then he requires justice of you. If you grant mercy to others, he grants mercy to you. It would be foolish to demand $18,000 and lose 22 billion. But we do it all the time, don't we? And so when we study his mercy and his justice, we have to study the requirements that his justice and his mercy make on us. He asks that you forgive. You forgive 18,000, I'll forgive 22 billion. What kind of king can erase a $22 billion debt? You owe me 22, you can't pay it, that's okay. What kind of king can erase a $22 billion debt? He can. And he's willing to, freely willing to, if you're willing to let go of the 18,000. So I want to focus on one phrase, going back to the parable. I want to point out verse 27. Tell me what the Lord did to the servant. Beautiful phrase. Tell me what the Lord did. What does having compassion and forgiving mean? What did he do? He loosed him. He loosed him of the debt. You must learn to loose. Let go, loose them of the debt. 
the only way you can show you're forgiven. Because in my mind, in my heart, they have been loosed. And if you have loosed them, then he looses you. A testify of that doctrine. Now, allow me to take five minutes and add a twist on that. I care deeply about you. And I have had a front row seat into your age group for 30 years. And I believe you were all nodding and saying, yes, this is something I should do. And I believe you're like this student even with the people who owe you great debts, and you're probably going to go out, and with the help of the atonement, you're going to lose your father or whoever has hurt you the most. But I think there's someone else you need to lose. And that's you. I think you hold yourself responsible for pain that has come into your life. I think you are angry at a past self for making a horrible decision. And that decision has caused a great deal of pain. And you are holding yourself guilty for the $18,000. You are demanding of yourself payment for the infraction that you caused yourself. I have seen it in almost everyone I know. I have a dear student that I love dearly. She's probably 25 now. When she was 18 years old, she graduated from high school. She went hiking up Little Cottonwood Canyon and fell about 60 feet, causing major physical damage to her body. And she has blamed that 18-year-old for years for her life. And she is miserable. And she is not only angry at an 18-year-old self, but now she's dealing with a $22 billion debt because she can't let go of a debt she caused. I think the hardest person for you to forgive is you. A mistake you made years ago that you're still paying for. Loose it. When that 25-year-old finally forgives the 18-year-old who just went on a hike, she had no intention of changing her life. She was an 18-year-old girl on a hike. Loose that debt and watch him fix the life that you think is so broken. He has the ability to fix it. Of that I testify.
But you've got to take the burden off of you. And you've got to put it on him. I think it's one thing to talk about someone else who owes you $18,000. But I think we need to end our discussion by acknowledging that you need to stop blaming yourself for some stupid decision you made. Let it go. Loose yourself of that debt and watch him pour down blessings upon you. I testify he will be as quick to forgive you the $22 billion as you are to forgive others, including some past version of yourself who made a stupid decision. Can I share one, be very personal? The, Satan knew exactly how to discourage me as a very young missionary. He paraded every sin I'd ever committed before me every day. And I would begin to convince myself that I'm not worthy. I should go home. I shouldn't be on the mission field. I'm a horrible person. And I would kneel down to pray and I would feel his peaceful spirit say, no, you're you're good. And I'd stand back up and I'd go to work and then the thoughts would occur. And I would, I'd remember everything that I've done, all those dumb decisions that 12-year-old me made and 16-year-old me made. And I would remember those horrible decisions. And again, I would think I, I'm not worthy. I should go home. And that wrestle continued for my first several months in the mission field. I remember one day the burden was really heavy. I just was overwhelmed with feelings of unworthiness. Even though I had done all that I could do to get out onto the mission field and be worthy. I had repented. But I just, I, I couldn't let it go. And it just, it kept dragging me down. And I remember vividly one day we were in the stake center in Ermita, Mexico City. And we got to the stake center early. We were there for a zone conference. And I thought, oh, good, I have some time. I can go find a quiet room and I can talk to Heavenly Father and plead for him to forgive me and, and let my sins go. And I was hoping that he would solve a burden that I was placing on me. So I went, I, I thought, I'm going to go find a room where I can pray quietly. And I vividly remember walking down and turning the, into a hall. And I heard a voice as clearly as you're hearing mine. And I can still hear it today. He said, my son, I have forgiven thee. Why sufferest thou? And in that moment, I realized it wasn't his forgiveness I needed. It was mine. And I said to that 12-year-old self and that 16-year-old self, you idiot. But I let you go. I let it go. Thank you for teaching me a lesson of what not to do in my life.
I never wrestled with that demon ever again in the mission field. It wasn't God's forgiveness I needed. It was mine. Be that one that claims his mercy by extending mercy. It's my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.